The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for he will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for that, for this is he. Then Samuel took on the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers in the back corner. If your child's, if this is your child's first time, then please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thank you, Mary. Well, good morning. My name is Ben, and I'm on staff here at Restoration. We're glad you're here with us. If you're new here, and um, you can, um, we're so glad you're here. There are ways to kind of uh, on ramps if you're interested uh, learning more. Uh, probably the easiest way is our website or our app, um, and you can find ways to connect there. There's a lot going on this summer, and we just love to gather people and, and enjoy um, being together. So you can find out uh, more there. But um, one more kind of plug to piggyback off what Mark said about VBS. It was awesome. Um, that's the technical term is awesome. Uh it was so much fun, and so many volunteers worked so hard, and um, of that, Justine Bryan kind of led the charge, so thank you, Justine. Y'all want to give her a hand? <clears throat> the last night, I went around to different kids and gave them the mic and said, what do you love about VBS? They said snacks and the games and fun and all these different stuff, 
And one girl, little girl said, um, because my parents get a break. And so everybody wins. Everybody wins. Uh, what was read for us was 1 Samuel 16, and we're in this sermon series uh, this summer called Dispositions of the Heart, and we're looking at the heart of David. And last week, we looked at the heart of Saul and how Saul was prideful, and, um, but we're really going to launch into the life of David. What does David look like? What's, what's his interior life marked by? Things that we should commend and, and take up, things that we should be really aware of, all because what's in David is also, we would offer, is in you and I. And actually, the Lord wants us to see the picture of David and uh, be tuned to that fact. And so, dispositions of the heart in First and Second Samuel, this Old Testament historical book telling us about the kingship, the king, the throne of Israel. Uh, well, like every single superhero movie, it begins with some kind of origin story, right? Clark Kent is found in a field, I think. Um, Bruce Wayne. The rich Bruce Wayne becomes Batman. All these kind of different, um, you know, Peter Parker gets bit by a spider. All these different heroes have these powers that are marked with might. And they're, that's why they're superheroes. But I would offer that we don't fall in love with superheroes because of their strength or their ability. We fall in love with superheroes because of their story. We fall in love with superheroes and, and they grab us not because they can shoot webs out of their hands or whatever, or uh, Robin, who's a worthless superhero, if you ask me. We fall in love with superheroes because some story has brought them to the place of having an ability, that they're marked by a story that's brought them to the place where they are now. And here we see the story that brings David to the throne, this origin story. And what I would offer is that's exactly the same with David. We fall in love with the way he has become king, not because he is king. The way he has become king, and it's a humble beginning. And this morning, we'll kind of contrast that with Saul a whole lot. David's the second king of Israel. Saul is the first king of Israel. We'll see how the Lord really does show what he longs for the kingship and the throne to be marked by in David that was not in Saul. And so this morning, we'll see three things. We'll see. Uh, the king we want, uh, second, the king we get, and third, the king we need. The king we want, the king we get, and then the third, the king we need. But with that in mind, let's uh, go to the Lord and ask uh, him to be with us as we explore First Samuel 16 together. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you right now and we look at the story of the first kings, Saul and David. We feel like they're antiquated at times. Seems just like a far off tale. With years in between this happening and us this very day. And yet, Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you take the things that are oh so true in this text and make it real to our hearts, because that's what you do best. Would you show us more of you and also more of ourselves, all so that we may fall more in love with Jesus this very day, because we all long to be changed in some way, shape, or form. And by the power of your Spirit, would you make that change possible and meet your people just as you've promised. We pray in your name, Jesus. You've walked out of the grave. May we walk out with you. Amen. 
so first, uh, this morning, we see the king we want. The king we want. Now, last week, we saw Saul. S-A-U-L, Saul. Uh, he's the first king of Israel. And we see him lose his kingship in 1 Samuel 15. He's been a king for about five or six chapters, and he loses his kingship because actually what's happened is he has uh, been told to go kill the enemy, take out the Amalekites. And what does Saul do? Most of that. He kills all the weak people. He kills all the things that have no benefit to him. And he actually ends up sparing all the fat and livestock, which he gives a sacrifice to himself, an altar for himself. And he keeps King Agag so Saul himself can be a king of kings. And the Lord says, actually, you know, Saul, you, you, you obeyed 95% of what I told you to do, but you really obeyed 0% because actually you were in it for yourself, not for me. And because of that, I'm out. And so we see Saul's reign begins to come to an end. And what chapter 16 begins with is Samuel, this priest, grieving. He realizes Saul's out. What happens now? I anointed Saul king. Who's going to be king? And the Lord comes to Samuel and says, why are you grieving over Saul? And he's not downplaying grief. He's just saying, why are you misplacing your affection and grieving over somebody who obviously is in it for himself? He says, here's what you'll do, actually. I'm going to show you exactly where to go, Samuel, so that you can anoint this next king. And I'm going to show you where to go. You should take an offering and you should go to Bethlehem. And you should go to the house of Jesse because Jesse has sons. And there you will find the next king of Israel in Jesse's house with his sons. And Samuel very commendably obeys. And he goes out. He goes to Jesse's house and, and he sees Jesse's son, his oldest son, Eliab. And he sees Jesse's son, Eliab, and he says, you want a king? I'll get you a king. This is the king. He's the oldest. He's the strongest. He's handsome. He has every trait of a king. Eliab, Jesse's oldest son. It says in verse 6, it says, when they came... Um, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Surely this is the guy the Lord wanted me to see. He brought me right to him. Now, why does Samuel want Eliab and think Eliab is going to be the king of Israel, the next king? Height. Height. Now, to understand that point, we've got to take two steps back because we're kind of air dropped into the book of 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 16. And so we're going to take two steps back to the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. And Samuel's mom, Hannah, uh, isn't able to have children. And then she has Samuel. And she is over the moon. She's prayed and prayed and prayed for this. And and she has this song and this prayer of thanksgiving in 1 Samuel 2. And in this song, this prayer, it's long and it's thick and it's beautiful. But in it, she says this. Samuel's mom, Hannah, prays this and says this, sings this. Part of the song says, Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by Him deeds are weighed. She's praising God and saying all these things of God, and in it she says, Do not keep talking so proudly. So proudly. The same word for proudly is the same word for height. 
Pride and height are the very same things we see in 1 Samuel. So if we fast forward seven chapters, 1 Samuel 9, when Samuel is tasked to go find a king and he sees Saul. And what is the descriptor of Saul? It says, Kish had a son named Saul. He's a handsome, as handsome a man as you can find anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Height. We see here, height and pride go together. We see what marks Saul, the first king of Israel, height and pride. And so it makes total sense that the king that Samuel wants and all of Israel wants, because the king they want to be like all the other nations around them, is someone who's tall and someone who's proud. Fast forward to next week, David and Goliath, Mark will preach on. Goliath loses, by the way. Spoiler. Why are they afraid of Goliath? Yes, because he's a giant. And he is a giant. But he's proud. They're afraid of his pride and his arrogance and of his, of his confidence. Pride and height. And they want, just like every other nation, they want their king to be marked by pride and height. And so it makes total sense why David is the very last one to be considered. After all of his brothers, he's the very last one to be considered. And actually, he's not even considered. Because his father, um, you know, Samuel says, none of these, your sons, are the king I'm supposed to anoint. Are these all your boys? And he says, no, no. He says, uh, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He said, you can read into this, the emotion. Well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Right? He's saying, you don't want him to be king. The youngest, the meekest, the smallest. You don't want this runt to be the king of Israel because the king you want, height and pride. Now, for us to really grab hold of this, we have to go uh, and look at Larry David's Seinfeld. 1990s show, a show about nothing, a comedy series of a group of friends living in New York City. You don't have to know really what it's about to, to grab hold of this, but there's this one character named Kramer, and he's bombastic, he's sporadic, he's spontaneous. He really is just the wild card. And Kramer goes to his friend Elaine, and Kramer says, I heard you're putting on this auction, uh, charity um, thing, and the charity event that you're putting on is this bachelor auction, where you auction a date away with The Bachelor. And he says, why have you not asked me to be in it? She says, well, look at a mirror. And, and uh, he says, put me in. So she puts him in and it shows this uh, auction, this bachelor auction. And the scene goes like this. Elaine's announcing all of these eligible bachelors. And there's the CEO that walks down the runway and people are bidding hundreds of dollars. And there's these Harvard graduates, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars. And then there's these uh, hedge funds and, and big money guys. A lot of, you know, you can get, grab the point. Well, then comes Kramer. And Kramer, it says, Elaine, the scene goes like this. Elaine says, well, next contestant and, and bachelor is uh, number 516. And he's a, he's a high school graduate. <laughs> At which point, Kramer walks over to Elaine, whispers something, and 
He said, she corrects him herself and says, well, high, high school equivalency graduate. <laughs> He's 6'3", and all this whole time Kramer's doing this. You can picture, yeah, picture it. He's 6'3", 190 pounds. He's, uh, he's self-employed. He likes fruit. And he uh, just got a haircut. And at this point, Kramer goes from moonwalking to falling off the stage onto a table and sporadically getting up. And Elaine says, start the bidding at five bucks? <laughs> All those descriptors, and certainly the scene that is, of this bachelor falling off the stage. All of those things make it clear that he is not the most eligible bachelor in all of New York City. And as Samuel is looking for a king, it's clear that the youngest, the meekest, the smallest son of Jesse is far from the greatest candidate to be the king of Israel. Because the king we want is not somebody who is the bottom of the barrel. We want height and we want pride. And here's why we want that. There's probably two desires that drive that. And, and one's good and, and one you can probably tease out the other one. The, the good one is this. That we want someone to be strong and, and, and proudful, prideful, confident because we want rest and peace. We want to know rest and we want to know peace. And we want, we want those things and we're able, because we want those things, to bow a knee. We will bow a knee to someone who's strong. Because then we're seen and soothed and safe and secure. That's what the Christian journey is like. To bowing a knee to Jesus. And in that we know rest and peace. And yet the people of Israel, they want a king. And they want a king because they want to know not rest and peace. They want to know what it's like to be recused of responsibility and to be passive. They want a king for all the wrong reasons. We, this whole king thing begins with them saying, we want a king like all the other nations. And it breaks God's heart. They want to know someone is fighting for me, not because I'm going to bend a knee to them, but because I'm going to bow out. I don't have skin in the game. I'm uninvolving myself. And friends, I don't think I'm alone when I say I'm at my worst. When I look for a king, when I search to dub something king that allows me to recuse myself from responsibility and then allows passivity to permeate my life. We don't want a king for us to bow a knee to. We want a king that says, you do whatever you want to do, I'll take care of it. Strength, height and pride. We'll make anything king or something king that's strong so that we don't have to be. We'll make something king that's strong so that our fears are soothed. And that's the kind of king that Israel wants. Height and pride. And yet that's not the one they get. This next idea. We see the king that they get, the kind of king they get. Because Samuel's the one who has anointed Saul king in 1 Samuel 9. And then we see here that he's about to anoint David. And in that, uh, we see Samuel say, boom, alive, he's the one. And as he thinks that and says that, he says, this, surely this is the one the Lord wants me to anoint. 
we see God remind Samuel, hey, you anointed Saul. Let me point this one out for you. I'm going to show you the king, not the one you want, but the one you need, the one you get. Because God's telling Samuel, your criteria for king and my criteria for king aren't lining up, so let me help you. It says in verse 7, after looking on Eliab and saying, this is the one, it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, you know, look on his appearance or on the height, the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Here's the kind of king the Lord wants for the people of Israel and will give to the people of Israel. One who is humble in heart. Humble in heart, marked with humility. Now, humility is kind of a Christianese word. You, you, you hear it and you think, okay, that's a good virtue, a good characteristic to have, to uphold, to structure your life around an ingredient, a part of the pie. What is it? It's a slippery word. It's a nebulous and ethereal word. What is humility? And so let's ground the thought of humility here in this text. So in 1 Samuel 16, David is obviously marked as someone who's humble. How do we see that? The first time David is mentioned in the book of 1 Samuel is right now. He has no campaign to give rise, to give people confidence of, I'm your guy, vote for me, and this rise. He's not talked about at all because actually what he's doing is he's in the field looking after mindless, I'm using the S word, stupid animals, sheep. He doesn't say one word, nor does it even come up in a book where he's going to be the king in. Now, what does that have to do with humility? The humble heart is most seen when it doesn't want to be seen. The humble heart is seen when it most doesn't want to be seen. And here we see it in David as he's serving others. He's in the service of others. And the best way to see your own heart is actually when you begin to serve others, when you get, get around others. Because when you get around other people, it's going to ask a lot of you. It's going to ask for you to die a lot to yourself. If you live with other people and you're a roommate, right? The, the dishes in the sink that are soaking for the past three or four days, that'll make you check yourself. Right? To be married, it's a beautiful thing, and yet it's a rock tumbler. It'll, it'll ask much of you because you'll see much in yourself. And when you are around other people, that's when it's apparent what's in your heart, and it exposes much of you. And certainly in the service of other people, you will have to answer the question, why am I doing this? What is in it for me? And yet we see in David what he's doing is caring well, through protection, through feeding, through leading the people in the pasture who are of almost no value. I mean, his own father says, you don't want this guy to be king. He's with the sheep. And yet in 1 Samuel, we see that Samuel comes across David and makes him king. And actually the way that David, uh, Samuel comes across David and Saul 
are very similar and yet expose the motives of the heart, what's going on in the heart. So let's take a quick zoom out again. How does Samuel, this priest who's going who's gonna to help um, establish the throne of Israel and anoint the first king, how does he come across the first king, Saul? He comes across the first king of, uh, of Israel, Saul, this way. Uh, Saul, his father loses some donkeys. And his father says, hey, Saul, go and get some servants and go look for the donkeys. Kind of do a search and recovery mission. And they go to this village. Donkeys aren't there. The next village, the donkeys aren't there. The next village, the donkeys aren't there. Finally, they get to, they get to a village and Saul finally says, um, he says this. He says, come to the servant. Let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. He's saying, who cares about these animals anymore? Because we're getting to the point where actually I'm too important to be wandering around looking for lost animals. And then Samuel comes across Saul right after he says this. How does Samuel come across David? He's not pridefully saying, I'm more important than the things that I look after. David is saying, I am here to love and shepherd and protect the sheep. It's not about me. It's about the things that I'm here to steward. The mark of a humble person is that in the service of others. We see that in David as he serves the littlest and the least, the sheep. We need a king who doesn't think of himself, but always thinks of those he serves. And C.S. Lewis talks about this mark of humility and this, this thought of humility in mere Christianity. He says this, he says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. Here's what humility looks like. He will not be a smarty, a sort of a, a greasy, smarmy person, nor one who's, who's telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said. And if you dislike him, it will be because you feel a bit envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. The mark of a humble person is that they don't think about themselves. They don't even think about humility. They think about you. Who does David think of as a good king, the humble king? Thinks about his sheep. And and C.S. Lewis bakes it in here that the most humble people are free people. And you know what it's look like. That looks like. That yeah, you get you get near people and you think, man, they are humble. But you probably get near people and you probably think, I they're free. You probably more easily taste their freedom than their humility. That's what C.S. Lewis says. If you dislike him, it's because you feel envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. They're free. And what I would offer is that a humble person cannot honestly look at other people unless they allow God to honestly look at themselves. Because as it says, God is the one that looks at the heart. Not what man looks at, but the heart. True freedom comes from true humility. 
and to land the plane in modernity. Look no further than the idiom speaking, khaki pant wearing, mustache man, sporting, soccer coach. Ted Lasso. Good job. Okay. About three of you know who that is. Ted Lasso. So Ted Lasso is it's a show on Apple TV, and he's this uh, Kansas football coach who then gets hired by an English Premier League soccer team to go and coach a soccer team. Does Has he coached soccer before? No. Does he know how to play soccer? No. Has he ever played soccer? No. Does he know the rules? No. And the first couple seasons are him grappling with the fact that what is this weird thing called English Premier League soccer? And so uh, that's the joy and the humor of it. It's a funny show. But in this show, actually, this American Kansas football coach begins to win. And he wins and he wins. And he wins not because he knows the game so well. He wins because he's uniting these players. He knows how to motivate people uh, by, by causing them to give rise to the fact that they're giving themselves for the sake of others. And, and all of a sudden, this culture just permeates the whole entire club. And that's the beauty of the, of the show. And in it, um, kind of this last season, people are realizing this guy's different and this club is different. It's marked by something different. And so this reporter, Trent Krim, his name is, he comes in and he says, hey, I would love to write a book and, and watch you guys and observe you guys and see every move you make. And everyone says, that's a kiss of death. Don't do it. And Ted Lasso says, sure, come on in. I got nothing to hide. And so this whole entire last season, Trent, spoiler alert, not a big spoiler, just a little spoiler. This whole last season, he's writing this book all about how Ted Lasso coaches soccer and why it works and why it's successful. At the end of the season, we see Trent Krim give Ted Lasso the first script of the book. And the book is finished. And the book is entitled The Lasso Way. And Trent Krim gives him the first title, or the first draft of The Lasso Way, and says, hey, make edits to it. Make edits to this. Let me know what you think. And at the very end of the season, we see that Ted Lasso uh, plops this um, annotated title page, and that's it. Back on Trent Krim's desk. And what does it say? The only markings on it says this. There's a great job, Trent. I love it. One small suggestion. I changed the title. It's not about me. It never was. The mark of a humble person, when they feel spotlight, when they know spotlight, when they feel acclaim, they always shift it to the people they're leading and loving. Their team or their sheep. Because David is the king that they most need and the king they will get. And the king they need and the king they will get is not someone who should be tall and proud, but someone who says, I'm in it for my sheep. I'm not in it for me. That's the king they get who attends to his sheep. And that's what David is, the shepherd king. And there's a problem because David's dead. Right now, he's, he's dead. And so you and I need a king. 
And if we look at this model of the beautiful king, the right king that Israel needs, and actually the beautiful and the right king that you and I need, we need a shepherd king. And that's the king we get. The king you and I most need will also be a shepherd. The king that you and I most need will also be from Bethlehem, just like David is. We need a shepherd king. So how did Samuel find Saul? Samuel found Saul by Saul being a terrible shepherd and and finally giving up on the sheep for his own sake. How did Samuel find King David? Because King David was giving himself in service humbly to his sheep. How do you and I find our shepherd king? And this really is the crux of all Christianity. Is that the true shepherd king that you and I need We don't find. Because the crux of Christianity is that the true shepherd king that you and I most need actually finds you. He's the one that comes after you. He's the one that feels for you. He's the one that lays his life down for you. And in Matthew 9, this gospel, it tells of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. We see that Jesus is going around healing people. And he's raising people from the dead. And what does it say that's going on in Jesus as he's doing those things? It says this. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. A true shepherd king is not someone you find. He's the one that finds you. And the true shepherd king is someone actually who doesn't just find you, he feels for you. When he sees you, when he sees a sheep without a shepherd, what does he feel? Compassion. It's an emotion that actually, it says, takes over the whole entire body. It says, my heart is moving toward you. That when Jesus looks at you, he can't not grow fond toward you. Because the true shepherd king looks at his sheep, certainly the ones who are lost, and says, I'm here to protect you, to guide you, and actually give my life for you as the good shepherd and laying my life down for my sheep, all because it's never about me. It never was. It's about you. That's true humility. And because that's the kind of shepherd king we have, the king who says, no, you don't look after me, I'm looking after you. He's the kind of shepherd king that says, like Psalm 23, I'm going to put my sheep right in the green pasture. I'm going to put my sheep right by the still waters. I'm going to give them rest for their souls. That's the kind of shepherd king that we have. He's not the one that's a dictator who's demanding or um, this constrictor who demands so much and is joyless. I want to speak very clearly here. If you've encountered a Jesus that is not marked with compassion towards you as a sheep without a shepherd, you have not encountered the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus is a shepherd. He's the good shepherd. 
He's the one that looks at you. He feels compassion. He's the one that looks at you and says, I will lay my life down for you. Because there's no greater call of a friend than to say, you matter enough to purchase you. That's the kind of king we need. A shepherd king that lays his life down for his sheep, you and I. Let's pray. Lord, in in 1 Samuel 16, we hear that you tell Samuel that you don't look like man looks, that you don't look at the outward appearance, but you look at the heart. And when the God of all things, King Jesus, looked at people he was ministering to, he looked at their hearts, and what did he feel? Compassion. Lord, may this very day, by the power of your Spirit, may we know, sense, feel, and live out of the compassion you feel from for us. And may that very compassion that you feel for us as our good shepherd, may it free us. May we know the freedom of laying down in the green pasture May we know the freedom of sitting beside still waters. May we know the freedom of a restored soul. Just as Psalm 23 all says, all because you are the good shepherd. When we look at David, may we see you, the true King Jesus, reigning now. We ask this all in your name, King Jesus. Amen. All because you are the good shepherd. When we look at David, may we see you, the true King Jesus, reigning now. We ask this all in your name, King Jesus. Amen.